So just for the listeners, Zeb, could you speak a bit about your field of interest and expertise? Yeah, sure. So my main uh, research and policy interest is in infectious disease ethics. Uh, so the moral aspects of uh, infectious disease policy and research. Um, I've trained in medicine, uh, philosophy and epidemiology. Um, I still practice as a doctor and um, yeah, I mostly work in bioethics now. I trained in bioethics in my uh, postgraduate training uh, and I've always been interested in infectious diseases. So that's the kind of space I work in, which up until up until 2020 wasn't a big area of bioethics, I have to say. Yeah. But couldn't be more relevant now. Is um, philosophy and medicine an unusual combination? Yeah, it's... It's, it's pretty unusual. I mean, I, I kind of wish it were more common. I think it would, it would benefit us a lot if, um, if more doctors were trained in philosophy uh, and if more philosophers had some training in biology and public health and so on. Um, I think both of those fields really help one another out. They certainly helped me out training in both, um, but it is pretty unusual. Every now and then I meet some doctors trained in philosophy, but it's not, it's not common. Do you think part of the problem with um, the last two years in regards to mandates, restrictions, um, public health advice has been that we've had too much tunnel vision just on uh, one aspect of expertise, that being public health without any regard to um, our moral obligations as a society or um, philosophical implications, ethical implications? Yeah, I mean, gosh, there's all there's big lots of big reasons, you know, why I think things went wrong. But you know, when I think about what's the right thing to do in public health, you know, questions of public health ethics, I always think about competing values. You know, the the reason these areas are complicated and interesting uh, is because there's you know irreconcilable sometimes or incommensurable values that you have to trade off between, and the main values are uh, health, fairness, and freedom, or utility, equality, and liberty. And, uh, you know, in a real crisis, real public health crisis, we need to determine what ethically appropriate trade-offs can be made. But I think there was a lot of focus in the last um, couple of years in, first of all, health as the primary value, maybe ignoring those other two values, um, and also scientific expertise, which can tell us, say, give us estimates about how big a problem is, how much we expect an intervention to work and so on, but it can't tell us what to do. You know, in order to work out what to do, you have to have facts and values, and then you have to reflect on, you know, what the right thing to do is. And in a democracy, ideally, we need to, you know, find out what society as a whole would like to do and so on. Um, but I think there's been a lot of focus on, on science, sometimes, sometimes not even good quality science, but on the idea that, that science can drive all of policy and that that's just not right. That's never been the case. And do you think the problem has also been that we prioritised very tangible, immediate health issues rather than thinking about longer-term issues such as the psychological impacts of restrictions and mandates? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, all different kinds of health issues can be made more or less tangible or more or less salient. Um, and... There was definitely um, a, a framing of the crisis that we were facing as being a bit monodimensional, you know, that the, that the um, measure of success uh, was, say, COVID cases or COVID deaths. But as I've pointed out, you know, previously, 
once you choose, say, COVID deaths as your main outcome, well, that's a value-laden choice. You know, all choices involve values. Um, it's not just a, you know, value-free scientific choice to choose COVID deaths. Once you choose COVID deaths, well, almost everyone who dies of COVID is in advanced age or frail or has many medical conditions. And um, once you choose uh, deaths from that particular disease as your main outcome, well, then those people's interests are going to receive quite a lot more interest. They're going to be privileged over other people's interests. Um, and I think whenever someone tells you that a complex crisis is a monodimensional thing, you should stop and ask questions about what are the other things we're not paying attention to? What are the kind of um, likely or unforeseen or unintended consequences of the things we might do by focusing on that one thing? Um, so, yeah, I think there's been a problem with, with framing and with focusing on one particular thing, whether it's more tangible than other health harms, I'm not sure, because I'm sure you know, lots of people who've had mental health crises in the last couple of years would find that you know, extremely tangible. It just hasn't been out there in the media as much. To play devil's advocate, though, if the amount of deaths was reduced by this monodimensional attitude to combating the pandemic, is that a trade-off worth making still? Well, I mean, that's a that's a kind of deep key question in um, in public health ethics. You know, uh, under what conditions do the benefits of our interventions uh, outweigh the harms of our interventions? Right, um, and you know, if it were the case that all things considered, uh, a particular intervention was going to uh, reduce a particularly harmful health outcome and the intervention wasn't going to be associated with other major harms, uh, well, then we should probably do that intervention. You know, ethically speaking, that would be a really acceptable intervention. Um, and it might be the case that, uh, you know, some of the interventions that we've done have produced, um, you know, net public health benefits without adversely impacting on fairness and, and individual liberty. Um, but that's clearly not the case with all of our interventions. And determining, determining uh, for each intervention the conditions under which it would be ethically acceptable because the benefits of the intervention without, would outweigh the harms is, yeah, I mean, the, the really key question that we need to answer. And in my view, we need to answer it for every single intervention that we choose. That won't always be easy, um, but that's something we need to take very seriously um, do you and, think I, and I think it remains to be seen. You know, it remains to be seen um, for a lot of these interventions. We can talk about it more in the course of this conversation, but it remains to be seen the balance of benefits and harms for some. I think for some, it's obvious which way the which way the balance is. And I think what's been frustrating is how willy nilly these interventions have been um, thrust upon us without sort of taking into account the other effects that they might have. Do you think we ever had a chance um, in Melbourne? and for the most part worldwide, of not instigating lockdowns? Well, my short answer to that is yes. Um, uh, but to answer that question well, I think we need to be clear about what we mean by lockdown. Um, you know, lockdown, lockdown was a term that never featured in any pandemic plan uh, pre-2020. That was a term from prison management, you know, that was first used in prison riots in California in, I think, the 70s. 
And then it has come to be used um, in moments of crisis in, say, terrorist attacks. It's also sometimes used in nursing homes if they have an outbreak. You know, they say we're going to be in lockdown and so on. But it had never been used in pandemic plans. And so it didn't have a definition in public health before 2020. And if you wanted to kind of sketch a definition of what we mean by lockdown now, you might say it means the simultaneous institution of coercive uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions at a mass population scale. Those would be the kind of main factors, I think, in the definition of lockdown for me. Um, and uh, it's important to note that what was in um, pre-2020 pandemic plans was the institution of non-pharmaceutical measures at population scale and so on. But they always, those plans always said that prolonged use of these measures, indiscriminate use of these measures um, could lead to more harm than actual benefit. Um, and, you know, um, could, we, could we have gone without um, mass non-pharmaceutical interventions at all? Um, I think that's unlikely. Could we have had a much less coercive, uh, much less policed, much less prolonged uh, series of lockdowns in Australia and Melbourne? Um, I think absolutely. Uh, I think we, you know, things could have gone another way, um, but as we all know, they didn't. What do you think was the motivating factor for those who really pushed for lockdowns? Um, I think that's a complex question. I think there were probably lots of, there were different factors at play for different people um, in different times and places. But it seems, especially in the context of things like the Barrington Declaration, it seems in hindsight to have been quite a, I mean, nefarious doesn't seem too strong of a word to use, I don't think, at this stage. Well, I mean, I, I, mean, I, think, it, I think it depends. I think one of the biggest motivating factors had to be fear, you know, I remember people um, in early 2020 in Australia um, looking at, you know, um, some terrible scenes in small hospitals in northern Italy uh, that were under immense pressure during their early epidemics and, and people being scared, you know, saying, what if Australia was like, you know, those places in northern Italy? Um, and I tried to explain, you know, there's lots of reasons why we wouldn't be that way, you know, <laughs> our health system is better, fun better funded, uh, you know, uh, our public health interventions are better organised, it's summer here, it's winter there, um, you know, we have a totally different um, population density and um, uh, pattern of population interactions. Uh, there were kind of all kinds of reasons why I didn't think that was going to happen, but people, lots of people were afraid and um, not just afraid about, you know, um, the system being under pressure, um, but I think many of the people in, in power are middle-aged and um, they have older parents. And I think a lot of people felt the fear very personally. And that's a, that's a big difference from um, lots of other, say, epidemics or crises where um, the people who have decision-making power uh, and the people around them uh, don't always fear for themselves because there's lots of crises that don't touch those people. Um, but this is a crisis that could easily touch, you know, middle-aged, you know, people in positions of power. And I think many people felt that very personally. And I think my view is that that affected decision-making. It's a hard thing to prove. Um, but I think that was a big factor. Um, 
And, and then, of course, there's the kind of lot, there's lots of different political factors. And, and you know, one of the political factors is when so many other countries are doing it in the face of a crisis, it can be very hard. Um, it can be, you know, it's actually the easier option to do what everyone else is doing sometimes rather than to stand up and explain to your population that we're going to go a different way. Um, it doesn't make it right, the fact that other people are doing it, but I think there was a lot of political pressure for those two reasons, among other things, among other things. Do you think we instigated lockdowns primarily because we were following China's example? Um, look, it's, it's true, and um, this has been pointed out by very high-profile people, including you know, like Neil Ferguson in the UK, mm. who said, and he's not the only one, lots of people have said this, just as I said, the pandemic plans didn't include these kind of mass lockdowns. No one thought this would be possible and that populations in democratic countries would, would agree to this. Um, and then all of a sudden on TV, there were those uh, videos of empty streets in Wuhan. And people were like, wow, two things. One, this must be serious, <laughs> you know, if they're doing this. And two, uh, you know, maybe that kind of it's desperate times and maybe desperate measures are called for. Um, and so, you know, um, I'm not sure we in Australia were following Chinese example per se, but I do think that, uh, you know, that, uh, that in th those initial images of this kind of response were very powerful. Was there a decision or event which um, for you was the first indication that there were motivations other than public health at play what was the first thing that really made you sort of raise your eyebrows um well one of them one of them is what i've already mentioned which is fear i mean really hearing that fear come out in people saying irrational things like you know australia could be like italy even though there's so many differences between the between the two countries the two contexts and so on people were speaking out of out of fear um and you know, then one of the very early things was um, when the when the harms to healthy young people started to be exaggerated. So when people started using um, uh, phrases like "this virus does not discriminate," even though actually, you know, this is a virus with one of the most remarkable age severity gradients, um, you know, that we've seen in modern epidemiology. And if there's anything that it does, it discriminates against old, frail and um, sick people, unfortunately. But there's a remarkable risk gradient there. So it's clear that it did discriminate. And, and um, you know, looking back, uh, you know, that there, there, was that, there was that report to the UK government that talked about what communication strategies they could use. And one of them was, you know, dial up the fear. And the people who wrote that report, the people who wrote that report mentioned that, you know, this could have, quote, negative externalities or you know negative off-target effects or something along those lines and I was worried about that because you know I, I, I was very familiar with the data um, partly because of my my role um, uh, with WHO looking at human challenge studies I was very familiar with the risks to young healthy adults and they were they were never high if you took if you took a very careful look at the data and so the exaggeration of risk to young healthy people that made me worry that people weren't presenting the science honestly and accurately. Um, and, uh, you know, so that, that suggests there's other motivations at play. And then finally, I guess, 
one of the early things was the claim, the claim that the science had changed, you know, for example, on masks, you know, um, I, I was familiar with uh, pandemic planning documents and the reviews of evidence of community masking, which had always shown that it wasn't a very, you know, especially effective intervention. Um, and then there was an early um, lobbying effort uh, by a small group of, um, you know, motivated and well-connected people um, to claim that the science on masking had changed. Who was who was a part of that group? Um, uh, what's it called? It's called it, it, it was it was led by an artificial intelligence person um, uh, and uh, and a researcher um, at Oxford. And uh, you know it's interesting because you know artificial the artificial intelligence person doesn't have any special expertise here. Um, but was very motivated um, to change policy. And it, it actually wasn't true that the science had changed. You know, the, the, way, science cha- the way science changes, yeah, especially in this kind of evidence-based public health or evidence-based medicine, is you have to produce new high-quality data and then compare it with the data that we already have over, you know, years. And then depending on how much data and how high-quality it is, the new stuff that you have, well, that can change our consensus of the old material. So the, the science the, the science is constant, but the data is always changing. Well, I mean, these, these are really complicated questions in the philosophy of science about how science changes. But as, as new observations come to light, we mm. can consider whether that should lead to us revising our views based on, um, you know, rational uh, justification by high quality scientific data. What's not the case is that, what actually happened is that a group of people reviewed the existing data with a, with kind of like rose-coloured glasses, looking for any possible signal that maybe masks could be effective, anything, and and then reported their their review of what we already had and said, oh, actually, maybe maybe there'll be more, maybe masks will be more effective than we think. Why do you think they did that, though? I mean, why masks to me seem uh, like the most benign intervention um, and the one with the least sort of, I mean, I can't imagine there's a financial incentive. I mean, they're the cheapest kind of uh, restriction that there is. Um, is it because they foster fear in the population? you think that might have been a motivating factor for saying that they were effective? I mean, why why say they're effective if um, if they're not and there's nothing to be gained from foistering that on people? Well, look, I can't I can't comment on what the motivation of those individual people was, but um, but your suspicions. Well, no, I mean, first of all, you said there's no there's no motivation. Well, there is a financial motivation because I mean, think how much money 3M made selling medical masks during this pandemic. I have no idea how much money that is, but it'd be a lot of money. Are they the main company that sells all the masks? Well, it's, it's one of it's one of the main companies, and, and I mentioned I, I mentioned their name because. Uh, Prior to this pandemic, as far as I'm aware, there'd only ever been one randomized control trial. No, I could be wrong about that. But anyway, the first randomized control trial that was done of medical masks versus cloth masks um, was sponsored by 3M. Um, And, you know, of course, if you make medical masks, (laughs) you want to show that the medical masks are superior to cloth masks. But how is that? I I mean, that's down to like you know Pfizer sponsoring you know morning breakfast shows in America and and that example how is that even allowed how is how is the company that has the most to gain from positive results from these 
uh, trials allowed to sponsor the trial? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, again, these are like huge questions um, for science and for society. But it seems it seems simple to me. I mean, surely that's that's a no go. That, that doesn't seem like a big question. But well, but it seems it seems simple to me too. But and but I, I'm a purist about this kind of thing. You know, I, I don't I don't take funding from pharmaceutical companies mm. or you know mask companies or anything. But but a lot of people do. And you know, if you look at the top medical journals in the world, you know, for example, the New England Journal of Medicine is one of the top medic- medical journals certainly in, in North America. And you look at the trials that they run. Uh, that they publish rather well not all of them but a very high fraction of them are funded by or its authors are funded by a company who has an interest in the outcome of the trial and and you know it seems like a kind of naive question would that have an effect on the outcome of course it does of course it does and um these are these are huge questions for society about how we fund medical research, how we have an adequately funded public sector doing research that can be independent from this kind of influence. But it's not. And even down, as, I, as I'm trying to point out, even down to the mask trials, you know, there's people who have an interest in that. Isn't, isn't, doesn't 40% of the FDA's funding also come from pharmaceutical companies? I don't, I don't know the exact figure, but, but a large fraction, and it's the same in Australia, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, directly or indirectly, gets funding from industry. Yeah. We were talking about the um, fear um, before, how that was sort of the first indication that um, we weren't really going to approach this as objectively as we might hope. And what has worried me is the um, degree to which people have been so easily moulded I mean, many would deny it, but I know plenty of people who two and a half years ago would have had many ethical issues with um, mandates, for example, amongst a variety of other things that have been uh, put in place in the last two years. Has that concerned you, that kind of lack of uh, compassion and human decency in the most of the population? Yeah, I mean, of course it concerns me. It concerns, should concern everyone. Um you know, in some ways it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me because if you look at history, if you look at the way people in authoritarian and unfree states uh, behave, for example, you know, if you look at East Germany um, under the Stasi, well, a very large fraction of the population, I think about 30% or something, were informants to the Stasi in East Germany. Um, and, you know, what does that tell me? Uh, you know, that, that tells me that once we're living in a society where you're not free, you're living in fear uh, and the authorities can like put pressure on you. Well, a lot of people are going to cooperate or collaborate. Um, Often they'll do that because they think they're doing the right thing. Sometimes they'll do it because they're afraid. Sometimes they'll do it, you know, to protect their family or sometimes they'll do it because they're paid. I don't know. There's all kinds of reasons, but a lot of people are going to cooperate. And, you know, that's one thing I think everyone should reflect on who's, who's lived through, periods of kind of authoritarian public health in the last couple of years so what does it tell you about yourself you know what what do you do under pressure um and so it's disappointing but history shows us that it shouldn't be necessarily surprising um and but i but i'm you know i'm also optimistic i I would like to think that people especially if they can meet and you know um freely exchange ideas do for the most part have quite a bit of compassion for other people um and um 
you know, uh, it's surprising to see people um, support such authoritarian policies um, so quickly. Um, And I guess we're going to, we're going to need, you know, all kinds of different um, expertise to explain why that happened and, uh, you know, work out what's going to happen the next time we're in a bad crisis. What did you think when the date for ending the lockdowns became dependent on how many people were vaccinated? Um, The curfew, for example, was only going to be lifted in Victoria once we reached um, 70%. And even when we reached that milestone, many of the restrictions um, weren't eased. And I mean, did you find that sort of shocking to see personal freedoms just held like a carrot on a stick so blatantly? Well, I mean, it's complicated. I think I think we have to take we have to take a step back and ask ask ourselves um, why were populations in countries like, say, Australia and New Zealand so slow to get vaccinated? Because you know, I remember at the end of twenty twenty, we we got vaccines probably faster than I expected, and where the initial data were more promising, more effective than I expected. And I thought, okay, it's the end of the first year of the pandemic. In 2021, everyone's going to get vaccinated. Or, you know, not everyone. You know, a significant fraction of the population is going to get vaccinated. Some people will want to wait. Some people won't want to be. But a large proportion will. And then there'll be no justification left for these kinds of, um, you know, stringent restrictions. Um, And, you know, I was wrong on on a lot of that. I was wrong about how fast people would get vaccinated. And, but but I think... You know, looking back, it's easy to see why. You know, in a country like Australia or New Zealand, where there's no risk of the virus because there's no virus circulating in the community, people aren't going to be motivated to get vaccinated. Now, um, you know, older uh, people, people with medical conditions, a very high fraction of them did get vaccinated quite quickly, which is the most important part of the intervention, by the way, by a long, 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 long shot. But then the rest of the population took a long period of time. And I think because, because they were sort of being semi-rational in the sense they couldn't see any risk of getting infected so they weren't motivated to get vaccinated now what they didn't see is that in the long term everyone was going to get infected one way or another and i think if you if you look at the trajectory you know people did start to get vaccinated not only when those um targets were set by government but also when there were outbreaks starting in victoria and new south wales and people could see that you know australia wasn't going to be spared epidemics and so people people were motivated to get vaccinated um, uh, but, you know, for me, and I, you know, I posted about this at the time, I thought it was kind of, um, for this disease, not necessarily the right thing to set a whole population goal when the actual goal should have been, can we get enough of the higher risk people vaccinated so that the pressure on our health system when the, when an epidemic occurs won't be so high. And once kind of enough older and unwell people and frail people have got vaccinated, well, then it probably doesn't make a lot of huge amount of difference if young, healthy people get vaccinated. Um, but as you know, that, that wasn't the narrative at the time. If the deadliness of the virus is the main motivating factor for anyone to get a vaccine, as I assume it would be, wouldn't the mortality rate of COVID-19 actually 
be quite a good explanation for why so many people didn't get vaccinated. If it's what it's underneath 1% mortality, I mean, it doesn't really surprise me that it did take a long time for people to get vaccinated. And I mean, I'm of the opinion that most people just got vaccinated because <laughs> they didn't want to be ostracized at work or by their overly judgmental friends. But I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, it's a complex question. It depends on your individual risk and your individual risk appetite, right? Um, but the most um, convincing early data I saw on this came from uh, David Spiegelhalter at Cambridge, who's a professor who dedicated a big part of his career to assessing risk. And he pointed out that, um, or he and his group pointed out that even in a very large COVID epidemic, like the first wave in the UK, as bad as it can get, the actual risk increase for young people, young adults say, was not very high. You know, it was the equivalent of you know a small fraction of your background risk of say, um, uh, you know, dying in an injury or whatever, which is small, but it's you know not not zero. And and they look at it in terms of um, your additional risk versus your everyday risk and so on. And it was a tiny increase for young people, and that that wasn't even adjusted for healthy people. Once you adjust for young healthy people this virus really doesn't increase your background risk of death by very much. Um, you know, so then, of course, there's an uncertainty around that risk and there's an uncertainty around the benefits and risks of the vaccine and so on. I don't know where those cutoffs are, where it's really in your interest, um, definitely in your interest to get vaccinated, but it's certain that young, healthy people don't have as strong a reason to get vaccinated as old, sick people by a very long shot. Now, just to preface this next statement with the obligatory, you know, I believe vaccines save lives. They are a miracle of modern medicine. As I said, I've had, um, you know, I'm double vaccinated. Um, but tell me if you agree with this. I mean, I think to be appropriately called an anti-vaxxer, uh, one should have to be against vaccines, period. Um, I think if you have an issue with a specific vaccine, far from being an anti-vaxxer, you're in fact partaking in the scientific process of wanting to perfect them. Um, in this process, you would point out the flaws in a vaccine, not to propose that they should never be used, but rather that they should be improved upon. Um, now, in the other context of um, an anti-vaxxer being someone who is wholesale against vaccines, I'm yet to meet a genuine anti-vaxxer. And that's not to say they don't exist. Um, I'm sure they're out there and that there's many of them, but I don't think that they represent a large enough percentage of the population uh, to warrant censorship, um, restrictions, censoring people at Leonard Cohen, of all people. Um, but I think in the absence of a significant amount of genuine anti-vaxxers, governments decided to create a different boogeyman, people who are against mandates. Um, would you agree with that? Well, I guess what I would say first up is I'm against this kind of simplistic label to start with. Mm. I, just, I, just don't, I just don't think we should label anyone as an anti-vaxxer period um, because and and that goes for all kinds of other simplistic labels that we might apply to people there's lots of different labels that we use um, i think you know when people um, express a view that isn't the same as our own or you know doesn't seem to make sense the best thing to do is to try and talk to those people and listen to their concerns and find out you know why they have those concerns. And of course, there, is, there are some people from all walks of life whose concerns might not be rational and you know, they, it can be difficult to kind of grapple with those. But a lot of the time, you know, say about vaccines, 
if you just sit and talk to people and listen to people, at least some of where they're coming from is, is rational. And if we just, um, uh, you know, alienate them, ostracize them for expressing any doubt whatsoever, well, we haven't improved their situation. Uh, we're, we're driving them out of society and we haven't improved society's situation because I don't know, you know, my optimistic view of democracy is that we want to have a free exchange of ideas. Um, so I, I'm, I'm against labeling people in that way. And, and it's even, it's even worse if we label people who have read relatively moderate views of the kind you were describing, if we label them as extremists, well, that's, that's not fair and it's not helpful. And that's exactly what's happened as well. And I mean, I, I mean, I trust the conviction of someone who proposes something that is extremely unpopular because, you know, there's no, there's no incentive for them to say it. Um, so, I mean, I don't think anyone who is of that opinion, whether I believe in it or not, is acting in a duplicitous way um, or, you know, just like a, a sheep. Um, so... Yeah, I, I personally just have a lot of sympathy for and almost admiration for people who have not just partaken in the you know anti-mandate um, protests and stuff, but people who are sort of bravely, I think, genuinely questioning vaccines. I mean that again, regardless of what I think about them, you know, I think they work. I think they are a miracle of modern medicine. But I think it takes a lot of courage to say the things they're saying in these times. Um, personally, I had no hesitation about the vaccine, but I did when they decided to mandate it. Um, I was going to get it anyway, but I certainly raised my eyebrows when it became mandated. Did the mandate more than anything else stoke vaccine hesitancy, do you think? Well, I mean, I think there's a range of factors that have that have um, increased vaccine hesitancy during this pandemic. You know, one of the factors was the speed at which vaccines were developed. A lot of people justifiably said, oh, this has happened so fast. How, how could we be sure about the safety and effectiveness? Um, one has been sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, sort of bubbling mistrust in kind of uh, institutions and authorities in the background. I think one has been a lack of transparency that, that um, authorities haven't been transparent and honest with people. And so they say, well, you weren't being truthful then. Why should I trust you on this? Um, and yeah, probably another factor has been these punitive measures of various kinds where we punish people, um, we put negative consequences on people for not uh, complying, following the rules, getting vaccinated and so on. You know, those effects can be hard to measure, um, but some of my colleagues who work on vaccine hesitancy and um, psychology and so on, uh, you know, do suggest that it can lead to, you know, ironically, it can increase you know mandates can actually increase the trust of people who already trusted authority a lot but it can also increase the mistrust among the people who, who mistrusted authority so you make a society more divided and i don't think we need a society that's more divided especially for a for a challenge as big as this that, that affects so many people i often keep wondering whether i'm on the right side of history with all these issues and i heard Vinay ask you this question you know how do we know that we aren't the crazy ones and you both said that you are experts on this issue. Um, you've been studying this your whole life and that's what assures you of the veracity of your stance. The problem with that point, I think, is that um, the same could be said of people like Anthony Fauci um, or Francis Collins. 
the more pertinent statement I think is, um, and the thing that reassures me, regardless of my expertise, um, is the fact that my opinion and yours is not a zero-sum game, um, whereas those in favour of restrictions and mandates are uh, sort of conducting an uncompromising and absolutist game. That's what reassures me that there's something wrong with their arguments and is an indication of how flawed their ideas are, I think. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Well, yeah, I think it can be difficult when you hold it when you hold a view that's different to a sort of majority view or the view of the powerful, it can be, can be um, scary and it can make you think that you might be crazy. I mean, one of the other reasons I know I'm not crazy is when I look at the pandemic plans that were written before 2020, you know, I agree with a lot of the (laughs) the things that are written in there, Um, but what we did didn't match, didn't match those plans. And so, you know, at least in the lights of people from 2019, I can't be that crazy. Um, And, but, you know, also, uh, for sure, um, it, it's important to update your views when new data become available. And, and the same should go for, should go for yeah, restrictions and, and, and other interventions that over time, even if you didn't think at the start <laughs> that various kinds of um, coercive public health policies produced harms, well, you have to reevaluate that over time reevaluate what harms are being caused, how many have been caused, how are they stacking up over time, and what benefits are we getting out of those interventions? And it's quite clear that whatever benefits we got before vaccination, we're getting a lot less now after vaccination. And so even if you thought the balance was in favour before, surely you would think that it's not in favour now or it's less in favour. And, yeah, people who who will steadfastly deny any downside of, of a particular intervention or any updated data i think it's difficult to you know difficult to take that seriously as a position is the question at the heart of all of this how many people are we willing to let die um, before we start impeding on people's rights and is that a question that is put bluntly seems shocking to people but is a question that is all the same worth asking yeah well so i think um what, that, what the question in the way you phrased it there highlights is a kind of trade-off between health and liberty, right? Or health and rights, same kind of thing. Um, and that, that's kind of one of the key questions. But for me, the sort of key question is, yeah, under what conditions do the benefits of interventions outweigh the harms and the liberty restrictions of those interventions? And that's a complex ethical question. Um, you know, unfortunately, some of, this, some of the things that we've done to infringe on people's rights haven't even produced benefits, you know? So, like, those things just need to be out the window to start with. Such as? Well, such as just about everything we've done outdoors, you know? And, you know, this, this, there's, there's still, as far as I know, two years into the pandemic, not a single well-documented case of outdoor transmission of COVID-19. Not one. And there's certainly no outdoor super-spreading events. There never has been. Um, and there's a reason to think that, you know, respiratory viruses just aren't spread very effectively outdoors. So my view has been since mid-2020, and I've been, you know, put this on the record, uh, that the harms of outdoor interventions outweigh the benefits, you know, because there are no benefits, basically. And just to go into that as well, um, I'd spoken with um, a guy called Dr. Stephen Quay previously on uh, this podcast and I'd asked him because we were discussing the origins of COVID and using his Bayesian analysis he'd um, 
sort of worked out that the statistical likelihood that it came from a lab was just astronomical. Um, but I said to him, does the fact that COVID isn't transmitted outdoors an indication of the fact that it developed uh, indoors within a lab? Um, and interestingly, he said that was actually uh, one of the few sort of data points that didn't point to it uh, developing in a lab because most of these viruses develop in bat caves anyway. Um, sort of away from sunlight. So almost all coronaviruses are negated by UV rays, he was saying. But it's just interesting. That's, I find that wild that there's not one single documented case of it transmitting outdoors. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. I mean, there was a very early kind of um, case series from China and there was, one, there was one documented case of two people who were sitting on a park bench together and they had a conversation over several hours and first, after they had that conversation, person A got diagnosed and then person B got diagnosed. But when I say well-documented case, what we don't know in that situation is, did person A infect person B? We don't have the genotype of the virus and so on and so on. Um, and then what happened is there were a whole lot of um, data sets where they tried to work out whether people had got infected indoors. And often there was a small amount left, usually about um, 5% or sometimes down to about 0.5% of total transmission where they couldn't find any history of indoor interaction among the people where the transmission occurred. But not being able to find indoor interaction is not the same mm. as people who only had outdoor interaction and where the, where the genotypes of the two strains. So when I, when I say well-documented, there just isn't one. And, you know, if any of your listeners are aware of one, they should write to me because we could publish it in the, you know, the, top, the top medical journal in the world. So um, it's remarkable how absent it, that, that risk is. And so it's hard to believe that just about anything we've done outdoors has produced a net public health benefit. And yet those restrictions are pro probably have the biggest impact on our psychological health, you know, not being able to go to you know, events with our community or with our friends, go to the park, um, you know, even in Melbourne having restrictions on how long you can um, exercise for. I mean, I, I remember during, um, I was living in uh, Melbourne with uh, two of my good mates in, um, during most of the lockdown and even going on a run, you have to have your mask on you. Um, you'd see people getting stopped um, by police and asked how long that they'd been exercising for. Um, you'd see people not allowed to take their dogs to the park. I mean, it was just I, – I, there was a, um, a comment from Clive James, which is the remarkable thing about Australia is not that we're descended from convicts but that we're descended from prison officers. And that certainly seems most true in uh, this day and age and it's just been – I mean, I've just been so put off Australian culture or – you know, it's it's lack of you know, it's it's lack of appreciation for intangible things. I mean, I guess do you think a lot of that comes down to the fact that as Australians, you know, we inherited our legislative system. I mean, we never had to fight for our rights in the same way that um, America or England did through, you know, various wars, revolutions. Um, is that part of the problem, do you think? Look, I don't know where I don't know where it came from, but um one of one of the factors is yeah, along the lines of that quip that you mentioned, the idea of it that you know we started off as a prison colony, and so maybe that's affected the way society is structured in kind of deep and intangible ways. That's possible. Um, obviously, being an island gives you a certain type of psychology, 
you know, allows you to picture yourself as a society that can cut itself off from others. Um, I think that's certainly part of it. Um, there's also the sense that uh, countries like Australia, you know, they're just like, they're just so lucky in lots of ways, you know, uh, wealthy, low population density, um, you know, uh, no recession for 25 years leads people to think that, you know, we can avoid problems that happen to other societies. And, you know, that can, those kind of factors together can lead to um, different kinds of decisions than maybe other societies might take. Back to the lab leak or the origins of COVID-19. Do you think virologists have an inherent bias to dismissing the lab leak hypothesis? Because I was surprised that there were pieces of evidence um, early on, which even as a layman seemed irrefutable to me, and we can go into those. Um, and yet various experts would still call it a conspiracy theory. Why do you think the dismissal of the uh, lab leak hypothesis by experts was so widespread? Well, there's a couple of different questions there. I mean, one, one is what's the inherent biologist, uh, the inherent bias of virologists. I mean, I think virologists, their bias is they look at the virus and they, you know, they're trying to work out, does this virus... Uh, bear the hallmarks of, say, human intervention or whatever. And I think that, you know, many of them are presumably well qualified to make that judgment. That That's not necessarily the only judgment that matters. Mm. But just quickly, sorry to interrupt, but just quickly on that case, I mean, there there is evidence um, that it has had intervention. I mean, just as one of those, the, um, the inclusion of a furin cleavage site on um, the spike protein that hasn't occurred apparently and again this is just speaking as a layman so i'm just recycling information from other experts but experts all the same that's never occurred in uh, 2000 other uh, variations of sarbaco viruses um so i mean there has been evidence um early on scientific evidence um as well as statistical proof so what I, what i just find interesting is i do not think that there is a sort of a, a massive cabal of virologists saying you know we've got to keep this a secret but at the same time the evidence does seem irrefutable so for me i'm trying to understand almost from a social psychological standpoint what is going on with these people that they refuse to engage with the evidence and sorry interruption but go on no it's okay that's okay no i, mean, I think um again if you like take a step back and you say okay um around the world there's what 50 or 60 uh biosafety level four laboratories that work on these kinds of dangerous viruses. And, um, uh, you know, not all of them work on coronaviruses, only a few of them do. And, you know, one of them's one, one of them's in North Carolina and one of them's in Wuhan, China. Um, and you know, that's a, that's a pretty big coincidence that a coronavirus pandemic starts in the place where we've got one of the biggest, most important labs that works on coronaviruses in the world. I mean, I think, just if you just start with those facts, you have to say, wow, that's a that's an interesting coincidence, and you know might warrant uh, further investigation. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons you know, there's a couple of reasons why I think people were res are resistant to the idea, um, say, of the lab leak hypothesis or related ideas. You know, one is that sometimes it was expressed by people they didn't like. You know, so there was you know among say U.S. conservatives, um, there was a uh, you know, early description of this virus as the Chinese virus or Wuhan flu or whatever. And 
I'm personally against the idea that we should label viruses based on where they come from and so on because it stigmatizes populations and so on. You know, we saw that in, we've seen that in Australia where Western Australia has talked about the infected Eastern states and, you know, New Zealand has talked about getting the virus from Sydney and so on. I, I don't think we should talk about that um, in that way. It's dangerous. It's, uh, it's dangerous language uh, to use. I mean, that's the kind of language that Hitler would use when talking about the Jews, for example, in the 1930s. Well, it just, just didn't, it can be dangerous for lots of reasons. Mm. And so I think people didn't like that and I, I don't like it either. Um, and uh, the other reason is because, you know, it does sound like, you know, what what people might plausibly label as a conspiracy theory to, you know, to to um, to claim that um, that the virus had, uh, you know, been released either by accident or deliberately from a laboratory. Um, you know, just because something is a conspiracy theory doesn't make it uh, false. And, and also sometimes it could be wrong about the conspiracy part, but it could be right about other things. I mean, there's no sort of um, a priori reason to reject uh, theories for those kinds of reasons. But I think those might be some reasons why people, why people are against the idea. Um, you know, me personally, uh, I'm, open to, I'm open to a whole range of possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, well, we should take seriously the data that we have and and, and look into it further. But um, you know, I think there are more important questions, and we can talk about those later. But um, isn't it a um, important question though to understand the origins of the virus um, because it would change our calculation for how we would deal with the pandemic? I mean, if it was a lab leak, maybe for you know uh, future reference, we would um, I don't know go some way to providing a more um, a, a way of we would create a system that would prevent um, dictatorial countries from uh, like like China did from uh, keeping the information to themselves in the early months I mean I've heard some scientists say that if we had got on top of this um, virus in the first three months um, we could have prevented 95% of transmission now that's obviously a hypothetical but I mean it's from the evidence we can See, it's looking like this outbreak occurred in September of 2019 and China, I believe only in early December, um, started to alert the world about it. So, I mean, understanding that this came from a laboratory would go some way to us putting in place measures that would prevent that kind of mistake happening again. Um, so I, I think, you know, I think it's the most important thing personally um, is to understand where the virus came from uh, in the same way that, you know, Chernobyl had a chilling effect on the use of nuclear power plants. Um, I think this has been much worse than that and um, and should be sort of treated with the same gravitas that we treat uh, Chernobyl. So, you know, I just, I just find, I mean, even if you take one statistical standpoint, the fact that it occurred within 10 miles of the WIV. I mean, I think more evidence is to be found in statistics and in scientific evidence because, as we know, most of the scientific evidence has been destroyed, which is suspicious in and of itself. But if you take as one statistical standpoint the fact that it occurred within 10 miles of the WIV, the likelihood of that being a coincidence is 0.000017%. Now, obviously, when you enter in other statistical data points, um, into that equation, um, you know, that goes up or down, that statistical likelihood. But, I mean, they haven't found a reservoir host and they've tested over 80,000 animals. I mean, there's there's no evidence saying that this developed zoonotically. 
So the evidence saying that it developed from a lab leak only accumulates and becomes worse and worse because there's nothing to counter, you know, counter the arguments against it. Um, I just find it really chilling to see um, such apathy to such a obvious issue. Um, anyway, let's take a step back. I mean, I think the most important questions are: What should we do about this pandemic? What should we do about the next pandemic? Mm. And how should we regulate risky research? Right. Mm. Um, and for me, you know, I'm already aware of the fact that um, infectious diseases research laboratories are not upholding adequate safety levels. Mm. I mean, you just have to look at the records over the last 50 years and there are accidents all the time. An average of a leak a year in Asia alone, apparently. I mean, I wouldn't, I don't know that figure, but it wouldn't surprise me. And, mm. um, and even in France, for example, people working on, you know, prion diseases that cause, say, mad cow disease and those kinds of diseases, just in the last few years, two young laboratory assistants have caught those diseases in France and died as a result, you know? And it's like, when you know, when you're, when you're aware of this, you realise that the safety is really not up to scratch um, a lot of the time. Um, so there's a question of, you know, how we, how we regulate that. Um, on, the, on the other sort of side, um, you know, coronaviruses, it's, it's a really interesting area for, for a few reasons. You know, one is that up until SARS, in 2003, there were only two known human coronaviruses, seasonal coronaviruses. Um, and then there's been a kind of slight increase in interest in coronaviruses, and we found two more seasonal coronaviruses, um, three, depending on how you count them. Um, but the reality is that they are circulating in animals all the time. And, you know, one of the really interesting data points for me is that after SARS, they went back and looked at people who... Uh, work with animals and slaughtering animals and stuff um, in some parts of China, east, uh, eastern China. And they found that, um, I think eastern China, they found that in a small sample, 40% of these workers had antibodies to SARS-like coronaviruses. And when I saw that figure, I was like, wow, you know, what does that suggest? That suggests that uh, people who have close contact with certain types of animals are being exposed to potentially new human pathogens all the time. But is it is it infecting them, or is it just uh, is that is that subtle exposure just giving them protection, almost like a uh, sort of semi-vaccine, so to speak? Hard to know, but if they have antibodies, that suggests that they had a reasonable dose of the virus, you know, enough mm. for them to produce antibodies. Um. And so I find, I find that remarkable and it suggests that we haven't even scratched the surface in the kind of um, biodiversity of coronaviruses out there. Um, so, I, you know, I don't necessarily think that the, ric the riskiest thing out there is what human beings are doing to viruses. There's also kind of risky viruses out there in nature. Um, but I do think that, you know, high-risk research uh, needs to be more carefully regulated than it is, uh, and that laboratory biosafety needs to be much more carefully regulated and enforced uh, than it is. I think, and for me, whether or not this virus came out of a laboratory doesn't change my view on that a lot. Now, I, I think you're right; it would change a lot of other people's views, maybe because they're not so aware of like how big a problem this is. Um, but. Uh, well, I think, I think awareness would lead to further safety measures, which is why I think awareness about where this came from is so important. Um, what measures would you put in place, do you think, to 
um, curtail the dangers of gain-of-function experiments? Well, I mean, yeah, first of all, this is my sort of very narrow area of expertise, but my, you know, my PhD supervisor, Michael Selgalid, is um, probably one of the world experts in this area. Uh, and, you know, wrote, wrote that white paper for the US government a few years ago. Um, and so a lot of my thinking is kind of influenced by speaking to him. Um, the first thing to note, I think, is that it's not the fact that it's gain of function research that makes it risky. What matters to me the most is, is it risky research, right? So just to give you, give you an example, in um, the early 2000s, an American group wanted to prove uh, what the virus was that caused 1918 influenza. And how they did that was they went and found uh, the body of someone who died of 1918 influenza and had been buried in Alaska in the permafrost. And so their body was frozen and they dug up the body, they took the tissue, they grew the virus in a lab, and then they infected mice with that virus. And let me tell you, a lot of those mice died, like many more that would normally die from influenza. And so they didn't do any gain of function research there. They didn't make the virus any riskier than it was. What they did is they kind of resurrected this, this, um, this pathogen from 1918. Uh, and uh, it certainly looked very harmful and very dangerous. And for me, that's a really risky type of really risky type of research. I think it was only done in a BSL three lab actually from memory, but so it's not just gain of function research that needs to be regulated. It's, it's, it's high risk, high benefit or potentially high benefit research, otherwise known as, dual use research of concern um it, that's the group that needs to be regulated i think um you know, i know a lot of people are worried about human beings interfering with viruses like kind of dr frankenstein type scenarios but mm. what i'm worried is 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 the risk of a pathogen emerging into a human population regardless um and i think the way that the way that needs to be regulated is there needs to be genuine independent oversight by an adequately empowered committee who's adequately funded and who has the relevant expertise? They need to have scientific expertise, but also security expertise. Um, and again, I'm influenced by by Michael Selgulid on this on this stuff, because you know scientists aren't very good at regulating themselves on this issue, and security experts maybe don't understand the science. So the committee actually needs to be really um, highly expert and um, extremely well funded, and also independent. You know, free from the influence of government and special interest groups and so on. Do we, you know, do we have that um, adequately operating? It's hard to know because there's so little transparency. But one thing I can tell you for sure is that biosafety and laboratories that are doing this high-risk research is not at the level that it should be based on the amount of kind of um, lab accidents that we've had. And so, you know, that's one area where we've, we probably don't, I'm sure we don't have full transparency, um, but it's an area where we need much better attention to the risks involved. Mm. Uh, well-controlled, poor decisions seem to be the name of the game with gain-of-function experiments, I think. Well, I mean, it really, it really depends. Um, you know, it depends what you mean by well-controlled. One of the controls that really matters to me is lab biosafety, you know, because you can do really, ris really risky research inside a laboratory where you're really sure that nothing can get out. Um, well, there's, a, there's evidence that um, the gain-of-function work that was being done at the WIV was being done in BSL-2 level safety, which is apparently the equivalent to a uh, dentist's um, office. Um, another reason I think that, you know, an honest investigation into the origins of COVID wouldn't have just been um, useful 
for how we combat future pandemics. But I mean, the main motivation for me to get the vaccine, honestly, was my conversation with Dr. Stephen Quay. Um, knowing that this or believing that this um, was an artificial virus is what made me more scared of it. And I think if there had been an honest investigation and public dialogue about the virus's origins, I think that would have gone a long way to um, encouraging people to get the vaccine. Um, and that, again, that's just another thing that, you know, I mean, it's it's not something you want to think about, but it just makes me think that public health is not the number one priority um, with these issues. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, like I said, I'm not, I'm not necessarily uh, more worried about a virus just because, um, you know, we think it might have been interfered with by human intervention. I'm just worried about it. Um, if it appears to pose significant risks and um, based on the data that we have, if you're a young, healthy person, the risks aren't very high. You know, they're in the kind of range where it's maybe reasonable for you to, to decide to get vaccinated. If that's what your risk appetite is, it's mm. maybe reasonable for you to wait and see. Um, I think, yeah, for me, it's the risk that matters the most. I guess it was a combination of thinking that it was artificially made and the sort of reports you heard about long COVID symptoms and, um, I mean, uh, there's one person I know here in London who he's, um, is 24 and he uh, got COVID in Italy in the first wave and he still doesn't have his sense of smell or taste. Um, and so I think it was sort of, yeah, a combination of those two things that made me think, you know, I really do not want to get this virus. Um, given the, I mean, it's sort of quite a, rude statement here but given the given the overwhelming um evidence at this stage i think it's overwhelming um is it fair to say that those who refute the lab leak hypothesis are either complicit or naive about the dangers of gain-of-function research well i mean not necessarily I, I think i think some some are definitely naive especially about say the lab biosafety stuff you know people who claim that we can rely on the current controls that are in place in high-risk laboratories, I think there's evidence to suggest that we probably can't rely on them. Um, are some complicit in this type of research? Maybe in the sense that, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of, depending on your definition of gain of function, a lot of everyday research could be classified as gain of function. And so some scientists, nobody wants to be over-regulated, right? So some, some scientists who their research isn't even very risky they don't want, you know, gain of function research to be under scrutiny because their low risk research might be might end up being overregulated. And so there's a sense in which they've got a conflict of interest. I think that's probably true. Um, but, um, you know, I think like a lot of debates, most most people uh, are kind of reasonable, you know. Um, <laughs> you think? I don't. <laughs> I've seen, I don't know. I mean, to the naivety side of that i mean what's frustrated me is i mean the only piece of evidence that um uh experts point to for it uh developing zoonotically rather than from a lab leak is i'll say you know historically this is how these have occurred and i'd say to a scientist like that you know well you're a scientist not a historian i'd encourage you to look at these things objectively and scientifically if you were looking at them historically you'd understand that a country like China is not a country that you should be collaborating with. Um, this is a country that 
I mean, it's, I've always looked at the CCP as, you know, it's like if Hitler had never lost the war and his, you know, uh, a descendant of his was still running the country. I mean, the fact that we're doing such dangerous work with this country that has such disregard for the value of human life just seems naive in the extreme. Um, what do you think about that? What do you, what do you think about the idea of working with authoritarian governments on this kind of research? I mean, I guess, I guess what I think is that um, what's certainly true is that the, the kind of cultural practice of science has changed. So if you look at, say, old school scientists, people who are, say, in their 60s, 70s and 80s, um, many of them grew up in an era of science where if you were working on your one little area of highly, highly um, uh, focused science, you knew every person who was working on that, on that area and you often knew them personally. And being able to trust what other people were doing was kind of almost on a handshake. And there were so few people involved, it was kind of easier to have oversight of what everyone else was doing. But that's not how science is practiced today. You know, science is practiced all over the world um, under very different conditions. And uh, we can't necessarily apply the same rules and regulations that we applied 50 years ago to the science that's being done today in different places. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm in favor of democracy and transparency in just about everything and in science in science in particular. Um, and so I think we, yeah, we have to be careful um, who we're working with. I've heard you talk about how lockdowns are not just a health issue, but a class issue as well, to a degree. Um, and I think that the way they harm the poor is a rich person has a lot more job security than a poor person and a... Um, you know, the lower classes have a lot more to lose and consequently have to censor them, censor themselves a lot more because, I mean, I think in Melbourne um, over the last two years, if, you, you know, you'd question mandates at all um, publicly, you know, you would have actually been in a bit of an issue at work. Um, and this is partly why I have a lot of admiration for people who are willing to protest uh, restrictions and mandates. What are your thoughts on this? Well, yeah, I think there's some some important questions there is like, well, who got harmed by the policies that we implemented? And there's overwhelming evidence that, you know, the people on whom the greatest net harms occurred were, you know, poor, marginalised people, uh, young people in particular, I think. Um, uh, then, you know, who who benefits? Well, it's mostly rich people who can work from home and um, and so on. And then, you know, the question is, um, you know, why did different people's interests get prioritised? Well, it just so happens that the, you know, the powerful group's interests were being served by a lot of these policies. And so that's one of the reasons why, you know, one of the self-interested reasons why, the, why they got implemented. And I agree that uh, the voices of the people who were being harmed the most um, weren't heard adequately. And many of those people were children. And, you know, children are kind of vulnerable to be, to be harmed in this kind of way. And then, the, then there's the question of, well, who could safely speak out about this, you know? And, um, you know, the, what I guess you're looking for is someone who is both has adequate expertise um, and has job security because, yeah, say scientists in their early career, it can be quite dangerous for them to speak out. Um, and then the question is, who did speak out, you know? And, uh, um, 
the answer is very, very few people, uh, you know, overall. Um, and often at great personal cost. Uh, and, you know, one of my kind of intellectual heroes of this pandemic is, is, is someone I've since co-authored papers with, Stephen Kreiveld, who's a young PhD scholar from, from the Netherlands. Um, and he wrote a very early paper in um, Asian Bioethics Review called Against the Lockdown Approach. Um, you know, and uh, similarly, um, another philosopher, Alex Broadbent, who was based in South Africa at the time, wrote a very early op-ed saying lockdown is the wrong choice for Africa and outlined all the reasons why. Um, and I think it takes, it takes courage to do that, um, you know, in my own small way uh, with my collaborator, George Herriot, I published a very early um, editorial in, in Australia saying uh, school closures harm children, uh, lockdowns harm the poor, um, and there should be greater transparency in government policy. Did it get us very far? I don't, I don't know, but I, I, am, I am disappointed um, that so few people spoke out. And I think in five years' time, a lot of people will say that they disagreed with or had doubts with some of the things that we were doing, um, but they were afraid to speak out. Um, and it, it, it's dangerous for democracy uh, when people can't speak, um, when protest is banned, when different opinions are censored. Um, it, I don't think that's a good thing for democracy or for science. Yeah, I feel massively let down, particularly by my parents' generation, just because of people who, you know, had the power to stand up to some of this madness just didn't. Um, and I think it takes a lot of courage to... I mean, I understand why they didn't because it does take a lot of courage to stand up against this because the perceived implication of standing up against it is that you don't care about people dying. That was the narrative that was um, put out there. Um, and I think it's also important that, you know, I mean, just a, a large percentage of the population must just be so bitter and resentful about all of this. And I think it's important when those people who, you know, where gun-ho on the mandates and restrictions and all that stuff, um, I think it's important that when uh, they do change their mind and eventually come around to some sense of sanity, um, that we aren't vengeful or, you know, bitter at them and sort of, you know, just let them fit seamlessly back into society because I think that sort of Bitterness and resentment seem to be the most dangerous thing, I think, in society. And um, that sort of seems like the next hurdle we're going to have to get over is how do we deal with how wronged society has been? And, you know, again, I'm sure in Melbourne this conversation still isn't, you know, very acceptable or the popular conversation. I mean, you can talk about these things over here in the UK um, for whatever intangible reasons they're, you know, they've retained their sanity a bit more but um but i think in time people everywhere will come around to this um just to finish up zeb i wanted to say a few things um and you know to what we're just saying now um having this podcast which i began during the pandemic has uh, really given me an appreciation not just for freedom of speech but for those who speak freely um, and i truly believe that the most noble thing you can do in a time like this is to speak the truth as you see it um, and allow others to do the same. Um, the conversations that you, Vinay, um, and maybe 10 other public figures um, have had during this time have been really inspirational to me. 
um, and not because they confirm or expand on thoughts that I myself had, um, but because I know that conversations like this can come, as we've said, um, at great financial cost um, and can, can cause people to be ostracized. So thank you for your free thoughts and um, thanks for your time. Well, yeah, thanks. I, I'm glad if they've been helpful and yeah, thanks for your time. Awesome.